all hat and no horse or something like that. I don't know what that is. Um, you know, the last time I was here, I did share a little bit of my personal story, though, and my uh, testimony with y'all. And I think because it was a men's group, some of you probably heard it. And obviously, with this, pop this congregation being a little bit different, some of you didn't hear that. But uh, five minutes on who I am. I grew up in a small town in southern Michigan. Um, I'm a blue-collar kid. My dad was a truck driver. Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and she worked odd jobs periodically to help with income in the family. Neither one of my mother or father had a high school degree. Um, so when I gradu graduated from high school, that was kind of a big deal, because you've accomplished something that your parents didn't. But um, it was back in the day, you guys that are teenagers here, there was a time that when you turned 18 and graduated with high from high school, you were supposed to move out of the basement. You were supposed to go start your own life. Not that your mom and dad didn't love you and didn't like you, but it, they kind of don't like you anymore, and they want you out of the house. So I knew that it was my responsibility to start uh, my own life when I was 18. And I got a job at a tool and die shop called Hillsdale Tool and Manufacturing, which was one of the best paying factories in my town. I made good money. And um, I worked third shift as a janitor. But a janitor at a tool and die shop isn't necessarily the guy that cleans the toilets. It's the guy that has a wheel parlor and he goes from screw machine to screw machine, from chucker to chucker, with a shovel that has holes uh, drilled in the, the head of the shovel, and you're scooping out the shavings out of the oil baths and out of the coolant baths from those machines all night long. That's your job. So you go from machine to machine to machine, and you scoop out oily shavings and put them in a wheelbarrow and then you then go get a forklift and dump them and then you do it all over again. So that's what I did when I graduated from high school. I also worked a second job in an apple orchard with migrant workers to make a little bit of extra money. But by God's providence, why am I telling you this story? Um, no good reason other than just give you some context for what I'm gonna share with you tonight. Uh, by God's providence, one of the other gentlemen working at that factory at Third Shift, at Hillsdale Tool Manufacturing, um, was a private business owner. He had a flower shop in town. And as many small business owners know, you need to make payroll and sometimes your revenue stream off of your business isn't quite cutting it, so you might go get another job so you can take care of the payroll and the other issues for your small business. Well, this guy was doing that. He was working in the factory third shift to just try to make sure his flower shop was healthy. And he had a master's degree in some esoteric I think it was international something something. He had a master's degree in international politics or international affairs or international business or all of the above. <laughs> and I was sitting at three o'clock in the morning at lunch at a picnic table in the factory and I sat next to this man and he looked at me and he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm working here like you are. He said, why don't you go to college? So I thought, I don't know. I don't even know what college is. But there was a Christian school about 30 miles up the road. It was called Spring Arbor University. So I washed the grease off and I got my expensive factory rack car because I could afford a really nice car with the money I was making. And I drove up the road to Spring Arbor University and I enrolled in a gospel and acts class, a Bible class. And that was my start in college. I worked my tail off because I didn't know how to study. And um, 
I got an A minus or a B plus in that class. And I thought maybe, maybe some doors will open if I actually go to college rather than just go back to the factory. So I sold my car and it paid for about one year. The next three were tough. The next three were tough because I didn't have any money left. And my mom and dad didn't have any money. In fact, I, re I remember one summer, I mean, this is one of those stories where I walked uh, to, you know, three miles to school barefoot, uphill both ways in the snow. But this is, this is true. I remember one summer, um, it was, uh, I was trying to live within my grocery budget and I ran out of money and we had cornflakes and sugar in the cupboard in my little apartment in that community. So I would pour water on the cornflakes and mix a little sugar on top and see. And I also had, I had peanut butter, mayonnaise, and eggs. So I made a peanut butter, mayonnaise, and egg omelet. Don't do that. Just don't do that. That's not very good. So anyway, um, God really in his providence used education to open up a lot of doors for me, and I'm very grateful for that. But one thing he didn't do for me is he did not prepare me to be a preacher. I'm not a preacher. So if you've heard me speak before, I want to make sure you know right off the bat, I am not a preacher. If I'm anything, I'm a teacher. I made my life, my career in education. Once I went to college, I thought this is great, I love it. And then God kept opening doors for me within education. I went and got my master's degree, then got my doctorate, and all along the way I was working in universities while I was doing this. So education became my sweet spot, it became my career. And then in 2002, I was called and asked if I would consider taking over a small little failing Christian liberal arts institution called Oklahoma Wesleyan University. And I was stupid enough to come down and interview for that. Now, I don't know if I can say this in a Baptist church or not. I guess uh, I can make you mad. We already started. So. Uh, yeah. I, um, I'll quote somebody else so that I'm not accused. I'm not accused of using inappropriate language here in this church. Um, one person pulled me aside when he said, "Are you going to Oklahoma?" And I said, "Yeah, they offered me the job. It's really going to be a challenge. The institution is nearly bankrupt. Um, I'm, I may be the president that they hire to actually lock the doors and turn over the keys to the bank because it's got about a year before they'll have to close the doors if we don't turn it around." And that was true. He said, well, I've got one word of advice for you. Keep in mind, this is a northerner. This is a northerner talking to me. Um, he, he, he pulled me aside and he said, I've got one word of advice for you. Don't go down there and be a damn Yankee, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and there's so much truth in that. Forget the word, I, forget the fact I just said damn. Um, he said, don't go down there and be a Yankee. Uh, it's very important that I think uh, when in Rome do as the Romans do, you respect the people that you live with and work with. And if you can't become part of the culture and respect the culture and respect the people and earn their respect and roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty with the people that God has placed you with, then you're never going to be successful. But it wasn't that hard for me to do because my background was such that... Um, uh, you know, farm life was part of my life. Raising a few cat cattle and playing with a few horses as when I was a kid was part of my life growing up. So, no, I'm not a rancher. I am all hat and no cowboy. But I do have a little bit of that blood coursing through my veins by the way I was raised in southern Michigan. Okay, what do we want to talk about today? 
By the way, some housekeeping here before I get going. Um, I've had a couple books. Caleb told me to do this. I, I always get self-conscious coming in and hawking my wares. But this is my national bestseller. I was blessed that this one actually went hot. Uh, it was a bestseller. It's called, they're titled, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. And God gave me, he threw me a bone. I said something one day, and it's kind of going to be a segue into my talk right now. Um, if you were to ask the Blum brothers, who are the farmers that fa farm thousands of acres around me down there in the Osage Hills, just southwest of Copan, if you were asked to ask the Blum boys, who's Everett Piper, they would say he's a man who speaks his mind. Uh, they'd probably go further and say he doesn't care what you think. Uh, you don't have to worry about Piper lying to you because he doesn't care if you don't like it. And there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I don't want to be rude to you. I don't want to be rude to anyone. But I also am sick and tired of this dance of our culture where you can't tell whether somebody's telling you the truth. Everything's political. Everything's a dance. Everything's a dodge. Everything's tolerant. Everything's inclusive. You never know what somebody really believes. That's not me. That's not me. So in 2015, I was sick and tired of this cancel culture where the students were whining and complaining about safe spaces and they were offended with this and that. And you guys know the story. I actually had a student at chapel at Oklahoma Wesleyan University who was offended by the speaker whose topic was on 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, the quintessential love chapter of the Bible, love is patient, love is kind, love is not rude, it does not boast. I mean, he's offended by 1 Corinthians 13. He comes up to the speaker afterwards and he pokes his finger in the chest of the speaker and says, you offended me, you singled me out, you made me feel uncomfortable. And the speaker comes to me and says, you've got a kid that just played the victimization card here at your university. So I heard the story and I was incredulous. How can you be offended by the least offensive passage in all of the Bible? I mean, I challenge you. Is there anything else in the Bible that's less offensive than 1 Corinthians 13? I mean, this is crazy. And I've got some 18-year-old snotty-nosed kid telling my speaker that he's offended by that. Yes, 18-year-old snotty-nosed Anyway, I was mad. I was just mad. I was incredulous. So I wrote an article for the Bartlesville Examiner Enterprise, which I was in the habit of doing back then. I wrote every week for them, and they let me say anything I wanted to say. The editor at the time actually kind of liked the fact that I talked like this because it energized the community. And a lot of people liked what I was saying, but made some people mad, and he sold newspapers off of that energy. So he liked the fact that I would do this. Well, this week I was really mad. I was mad at my own. I was mad at my own family, my own community, my own college, my own kids. I mean, I thought this stuff took place at Berkeley and Brown maybe. Maybe it takes place at Oklahoma State University or Michigan State University, but at Oklahoma Wesleyan University? You've got to be kidding me. So I wrote this article and I essentially said, if you want me to comfort you rather than to confront you, if you want me to coddle you rather than to challenge your character, go someplace else. A good sermon is supposed to make you feel guilty. That's the point. A good sermon is supposed to lead you to confess your sins, not make you feel good about them. My land. And then I concluded and said, this is a university, my land. It's not a daycare. Well, 
in God's providence, somebody gave that Bartlesville Examiner Enterprise article to Glenn Beck. Still don't know who. I don't know how it got there. But within two weeks, three and a half million people had read that article. And all of a sudden, Fox and Fringe and Drudge and Dreher and Limbaugh and Beck and NBC Today and newspapers even in Oxford, England and in the Far East were talking about the college president who called out his kids and told them to just grow up. And I had my five minutes of fun, my five minutes of fame, if you will. And that's this book. It tells that story. If you want to buy it, I've got copies out there. Now, the sequel just came out this past spring, and it's titled Grow Up. So this is not a daycare, and the sequel is Grow Up. Life isn't safe, but it's good. I'll say that again. Grow Up. Life isn't safe, but it's good. And the reason I wrote that book is while I was out doing the Fox and Friends deal and the gig on this and Tucker Carlson and... Um, who else did I do? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, I stumbled onto an answer. Because people would say, you know, okay, you're kind of telling us what the problem is. What's the solution? And I, I loved reading Chronicles of Narnia to my boys while they were growing up. I probably read through the whole series three times. We had a routine where every night I'd, it was my job. Marcy had done her job for the day. My job was to take care of the boys at night. And for all the failures I have had as a father, I did a pretty good job at that. I mean, even though I was tired and I didn't want to spend time reading and praying with the boys at the end of the day, I did it. Almost, I don't, I can't remember a night I missed. We'd read a regular story and then we'd read a Bible story and then we'd pray. Well, the regular story could be anything. Well, it was often the Chronicles of Narnia I read Les Miserables to the boys while they were growing up. It was an abridged version. Well, there's a story in the Chronicles I stumbled across in answering Megyn Kelly and Tucker Carlson and the Fox and Friends crew when they said, okay, what's the solution to this? And I stumbled across the story. I remembered when I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to the boys that when the children enter into Narnia for the first time, they're confused. They don't know where they are. They've gone through the wardrobe. They've left England, and now they're in this magical winter wonderland of Narnia, where they are, there are talking animals, and there are dryads, and there are fawns, and there are tree nymphs, this magical place. And they're down by the river, and the river is frozen over, and there's snow everywhere, and they meet two animals, two of the talking animals, Mr. and Miss, Mrs. Beaver. And they're in the beaver den, and Mr. Beaver says, as he's talking to Mrs. Beaver in front of the children, he says, hey, the rumor is that Aslan is on the loose. Aslan is returning to Narnia, and if he returns, winter will melt away. It will become spring again, and the white witch's rule will be broken. Well, the children are confused. They don't know who Aslan is. And Mr. Beaver says something about him being a lion. Now, they're not only confused, but now they're scared. So they look at Mr. Beaver and they say, is Aslan safe? And do you remember the story? Mr. Beaver says, of course not. Of course not. Aslan isn't safe, but he's good. That'll preach right there. 
I could shut up right now. You need to take that one home and digest it. Aslan is not safe, but he's good. There's a difference between safety and goodness, folks. The great lion of Narnia, the Christ figure of the Chronicles of Narnia, is not safe, but he's good. The great lion of Jesus Christ, the real Christ figure of the Bible, is not safe, but he's good. The great lion of the church isn't supposed to be safe. It's supposed to be good. The great lion of the ivory tower of education isn't safe, but it's good. The great lion of our constitution or republic isn't safe, but it's good. I mean, I've lost my ever-loving mind this last 24 months watching our country bow at the altar of safety and forget the beauty and the goodness of freedom. We're not supposed to be safe. Right. You're supposed to be good. That's the lesson of Christ. And it's the lesson that C.S. Lewis was sharing through the Chronicles of Narnia. So when I was asked by Tucker Carlson, when I was asked by Bill O'Reilly, when I was asked by these people, what are we going to do about this nonsense? I said, Aslan isn't safe, but he's good. We need to recognize that this whining and complaining about safe spaces is the exact opposite of what it means to be a mature, thoughtful adult. Right. We're told by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians to speak the truth in love and then do what? Grow up. Grow up. Act like a man. Act like an adult. Recognize that adulthood, maturity in Christ Jesus is never going to be a safe place, but it will be beautiful and it will be good. That's right. And that's what we should be modeling to our progeny, to our kids. And that is the thing that we should be fighting for in our culture. Okay, if you wanna buy this, you can, it's back there. And if you want grow up, the sequel, I do not have copies because I've sold out of those, but you can still get it on Amazon. I did bring book plates, and it's this thing that you can stick it in the front of the book if you want me to sign it. If you want to go buy it on Amazon, you can then have a signed copy by virtue of the book plate. Okay, so enough of that. All right, I want to talk to you about freedom and safety very quickly. The goodness of freedom. John F. Kennedy... Okay, I'm, I'm a conservative, if you didn't figure that out. And I know I'm not supposed to talk about politics in church, but again, I can make you all mad. I can go home. It doesn't matter to me. As the Blum brothers say, he speaks his mind. He doesn't care what you think. So I'm going to quote a Democrat, which many of you should find astounding that Piper would actually go there. But this was back in the day when both parties actually had a modicum of common sense. John F. Kennedy in 1961 said this, today we need a nation of citizens who regard the preservation of freedom as the basic purpose of their daily lives and are willing to sacrifice for that freedom. The cause of liberty, the cause of America cannot succeed with any lesser effort. 
Did he say anything about safety? No. He said, we need citizens that are willing to sacrifice for freedom and the cause of liberty. That's John F. Kennedy. Patrick Henry said what? Give me liberty or give me death. He didn't say, I fear death, so take my liberty, did he? No. Again, liberty, freedom. And the point I'm going to make, and I'm going to make it bluntly tonight, is that just the destroying of our country's economy and our country's constitution will result in more deaths than COVID-19 ever thought to bring to the table because we're sacrificing our God-given freedoms. In God-given, you know, when you drive across the ranches from here to Pahuska, you see a lot of cattle on the left and the right of the roads, don't you? Did you ever see any of those cows arguing with one another? I, I, I've never seen a cow enter into a debate. I've never seen a cow say, I disagree with you, you offended me. Let's have an argument. No, horses and cows don't do this, do they? They don't argue with one another. They don't go to church, they don't go to conferences, they don't go to political meetings. They don't care because what? They're animals, they're not human beings. You are the opposite. You are the Imago Dei. You are the image of God. You've been created in the image of God. You're not the Imago dog. You're not the image of an animal. Dogs don't argue with one another. Cows don't have debates. And horses don't go to church because they're the Imago dog. They're the animal. They're defined by their gut, by their instincts. But human beings aren't. You're not defined by your inclinations. But our culture right now says the exact opposite. You have a sexual inclination? Well, that's who you are. Really? Really? That defines you? Your, your libido defines you? I thought it was our Lord that defined us. I didn't know that my inclinations were the sum total of my identity. I didn't know that. And really, if that's where we are as a people, as a culture, where our every guttural desire is the definition of who we are, then we're in a lot of trouble. Because I can tell you right now that every person in this room wants to do something that you probably shouldn't do. <laughs> I do. I mean, I come from the academy. I don't like studying. I don't like memorization. I don't like doing all the work necessary to pass the test or to get an A on the test. I'd much rather sit behind you and copy your answers because you know them and you did the work. I'd rather cheat than do it the right way. I have this desire to get out of it easy. Well, this is confession, I guess, right? That's my desire. But does that desire define me? No, it doesn't define me because I'm not supposed to do it and therefore I don't. So if you can get that, if you can understand that your desire to cheat on a test does not define you, unless you choose to do it, now it is part of who you are. But you can choose because you're a free person. You're the Imago Dei. You're made in the image of God. God stamped what on your heart, mind, and soul? His thumbprint is on you, and that thumbprint is freedom. Freedom. That thumbprint is cognitive moral awareness. You know the difference between right and wrong. And your cow doesn't. 
Because, again, I'm going to say it a thousand times, you're the Omago Day. You're the image of God. You're not the Omago Dog. You're not defined by your libido. You're not defined by your inclinations. You're not defined by your desires. You're defined by your decisions to either obey or disobey your Lord because of freedom. One of the things that drives me nuts in this cultural debate that we're having right now that COVID has just shined a monstrous light on is we're willing to give all of this up. Everything I just said, you're willing to give it up. You're willing to sell your birthright for this nasty little mess of porridge called safety. Safety. Well, forget the freedom. Safety is all we care about. I finally got so sick of it that six months into COVID, when somebody said, be safe, stop telling me to be safe. Stop. Amen. Just tell me to be free. To be free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. I don't think Jesus said it would make you safe. John F. Kennedy again. And I repeat, today we need a nation of citizens who regard the preservation of freedom as a basic purpose of their daily lives and are willing to sacrifice for that freedom. Sacrifice what? Safety. That's what you're sacrificing. Sacrifice for that freedom. The cause of liberty, the cause of America cannot succeed with any lesser effort. I guess my challenge for you all, my challenge for you all is to listen to the words of Joshua. Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord God will be with you wherever you go. Can we just grow a spine? Be strong and courageous and stop being afraid and stop being discouraged. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians. I think it was in chapter 15. If I remember correctly, it's verse 58. Therefore, be steadfast and, and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So be strong and courageous. Be steadfast and immovable. And then the Apostle Paul, St. Paul says this again in to the church of Corinthians, which was a problem church. And your pastor's probably preached to you on this one. The, Cor the church of Corinthia, Corinthians, the church of Corinth, excuse me, was a mess. It was a mess of a church. It was the American church. It was American evangelicalism, quite frankly. It was a mess. So when you read the letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, remember that he's basically writing to contemporary woke evangelicals. <laughs> the Holman Christian Standard Version of 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says this, be alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men. I think that's a, a challenge for the ladies in the room too, but even if you, ladies, if you, if you throw me a bone here, I think you would probably echo what I just said. You would like the men 
in your families to act like it. Act like men. Grow a spine. Be strong and courageous. Be steadfast and immovable. Lead my land. Stop following. Stop caring about offending people. Don't try to offend people. Don't be rude. I'm not advocating for that. Speak the truth in love. Yes, but what's love? The Lord disciplines those he loves. Love isn't affirmation. I mean, there are a lot of times my dad did not affirm me. <laughs> but he loved me. You get it? Amen. Speak the truth in love and grow up. I'm going to share with you the article I wrote this past week on Romans 13. And maybe that's enough, and we'll go to Q&A. By the way, I write for the Washington Times once a week. And they're gracious. They don't, they don't edit anything I say. Well, they edit. They'll check my punctuation and my spelling, but they don't censor anything I say. They've never even tried. Not once. They just turn me loose. I actually got shadow banned two weeks ago, three weeks ago. This, is, this isn't relevant to Romans 13, but th this is where we are as a culture. This whining and complaining about safety has led to censorship by somebody. I'm not too sure who it is. I think it's some 24-year-old fresh college graduate with green hair and a nose ring that's employed by Facebook, went to Berkeley or Brown, wants their safe space, so now they've got a little closet at Google, and they decide what I can read and what I can't read. I mean, that's where we are as a culture. These fact checkers. Who are you? Who's the fact checker that's shadow banning me because I dared to write something on natural immunity? I'm serious. I wrote an article on natural immunity. I cited Cambridge. I cited Oxford. I cited Israel. I cited the New England Journal of Medicine. All I said is what everybody's known since the mid-1800s, and that's natural immunity is a good thing when there are diseases around. It's good to have it. And in fact, all evidence indicates that natural immunity might actually be better than the immunity to derive from a vaccine, whether it be the COVID vaccine or any other. They shadow banned me. They took it down. That article was trending nationally. It was on your news feeds. If you happened to turn on the morning that I submitted that article and you were checking your iPhone, and you get your Apple News or whatever news feed you get. My article was up there at number one or two. It was trending. And as a writer, as a speaker, I like this. I like this because I make money off of this. If my articles trend nationally, then you know what? I've got one of these going again. I've got one of these going again, and that's good for me. I'm sorry, I may sound selfish, but that's good for me. So my article is trending nationally. It's number one or number two in the news feed. This article I wrote for the Washington Times on something as controversial as natural immunity. Some fact checker shadow banned it and they took it down. It disappeared. I'm serious. I actually contacted the Washington Times right after it happened. I was looking at my phone. It was right there on the top of the list. I looked over here to take a drink of coffee or whatever I was doing, I looked away for five seconds, I went back and it was gone. It was literally gone. It didn't go from number one, number two, to number five, to number 10, it's gone. It's just gone. So I contacted the Washington Times, I said, what happened? And they said, 
Every article we've published on natural immunity has been shadow banned. Stop and think about that. Stop and think about that fact checker, whoever he or she is, or Z or Zur is, I guess I need to use my pronouns correctly. To, whoever that is decided that you couldn't read that. They decided that you couldn't read that. You know why they decided that? safe. They want to keep you safe. How's that make you feel? It should scare the tar out of you. And it should make you steadfast and immovable. It should cause you to swell up and be strong and courageous. It should make you determined to act like men. Romans 13. Oh, but somebody might tell you, well, doesn't the Bible tell you? You guys are Bible-believing Christians. You're conservative evangelicals. You guys believe in the, in the inerrancy of Scripture, right? Don't you believe that, Piper? Absolutely. Absolutely. If the Bible says it, I am supposed to do it. There's no argument. I shouldn't dance around it. Well, Romans 13.1 says to obey the government, right? You've heard that, haven't you? In fact, it's become more, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the most ubiquitously quoted Bible verse in our culture today. It's more than John 3.16. You hear Romans 13.1. Everybody knows Romans 13.1 now, that you're supposed to obey the government. Right? I mean, I used to think that the secular world's favorite Bible verse was judge not lest he be judged. Well, not anymore. It's Romans 13.1. Obey the government. Well, you know when they say judge not lest he be judged, I've often, in fact, I did this on the Pat Campbell show years ago. I said, read the rest of the paragraph, my land. Context is king. When you're reading the Bible, obey the Bible, but read it in context, otherwise you're going to have it wrong. And when Jesus says that you judge not lest he be judged, what does he then say in the next couple sentences? By their fruit you shall know them. Well, doesn't that mean you have to look at a person's fruit and determine who they are? You'll know a person by their fruit? Doesn't that imply that you're actually judging someone because of the way they behave? The fruit of their life will indicate who they are? Isn't Jesus telling you to do that? Absolutely. The context of judge not lest he be judged isn't that you're not supposed to do it. It's that when you do, you better be prepared for the same measuring rod to be used on you that you just used on somebody else. That's the point. Not that you're not supposed to judge. Otherwise, the rest of the paragraph makes no sense. This stuff isn't complicated. We can respond to the secularist who challenges us with, well, judge not lest to be judged with, you might want to read the rest of the paragraph, bud. It's not complicated. The same thing's true on Romans 13, 1. Michael Kruger, who is writing for the Gospel Coalition that some of you probably read, and the Gospel Coalition does have some good material in there, but I think they've kind of popped a gasket on COVID and some other stuff, quite frankly, too. But Michael Kruger, writing for the Gospel Coalition a couple weeks ago, said this. 
that if we are to conform fully to scriptures, that submission is a Christian virtue, and Christian citizens are called to submit to the government, and faithful men should be leading the way in doing so, close quote. And I then wrote, and thus Dr. Kruger doubles down on a passage of scripture that has become more ubiquitously quoted in our COVID times than even John 3.16. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, Romans 13.1. So Piper, why are you suggesting that we need to do anything different? I'm not. I'm suggesting that we read that in context. Be strong and courageous. Be steadfast and immovable. Grow up. Act like men. What's the context of this verse? Well, I'm a conservative Christian, like I said, and I believe in conforming fully to the scriptures, like Dr. Kruger says we should, but doesn't Paul's epistle to the Romans, this is a letter he wrote to the first century church in Rome, doesn't it actually beg the question that what that we should be asking? The obvious question. And that question is this. What's the definition of governing authorities? Okay, Paul says, submit to governing authorities. So let's, what do you mean? What's the governing authority? Paul, what are you talking about? Who should we submit to? Who are the governing authorities? Well, do you think maybe the governing authorities in first century Rome would be fine, excuse me, would be defined a little differently than the governing authorities in the United Kingdom? Or maybe the governing authorities in modern day Syria or modern day Jordan or modern day Iraq, Iran? How about North Korea, governing authorities? How about Brazil? How about Canada? How about the United States? And I assume everybody in here is a United States citizen. And, well, you live in the United States or you wouldn't be here. So if you're going to submit to the governing authorities, don't you think you should define who those authorities are within your country? Does that make sense? I mean, it makes sense to me. So I did a little research. Actually, Bill Federer wrote a book on this. Bill Federer is a guy that you should read. Bill Federer is an author, and he wrote a book. He titled it, Who is the King in America? And he provides the answer to this question that I just asked. He, after voluminous research, his conclusion is pretty straightforward. Bill Federer says the definition of Americans' government and the government in America is quite clear and quite simple. It's we the people. We the people are the ultimate governing authority of our nation. In the United States, the people are the king. Now, you want proof or is that just you know a nice slogan that we come up with? Well, let's go to the proof. The magistrate is not the king. The people are the king. That's from Governor Morris, signer of the Constitution. The people are the sovereign of this country. That's from John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. The people of these United States are the rightful masters of both Congresses and the courts. Who said that? Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Sovereignty resides in who? The people. They have not parted with it. 
That's from Justice James Wilson, signer of both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. The sovereignty of America's free people is, to my mind, the working out of the divine right of man to govern himself and a manifestation of God's plan concerning the human race. That's President Grover Cleveland. There must be a final arbiter somewhere. True, there must be. And that ultimate arbiter in America is who? The people. That's Thomas Jefferson. The ultimate, excuse me, the ultimate authority resides with who? The people alone. That's James Madison in the Federalist Papers, number 46. The people are the governing and administering authorities. They are the government. They administer it by their agents. They are the government. They are the sovereign power. President Andrew Jackson. The people are the only sovereigns recognized by our Constitution. The success of our admirable system is a conclusive refutation of the theories of those of other countries, Rome, maybe? Other countries who maintain that a favored few are born to rule and that the mass of mankind must be governed by force. That's President James K. Polk. Never forget in America, that in America, never forget that in America, our sovereign is the citizen, i.e. the people. The state is a servant of the individual. It must never become an anonymous monstrosity that masters everyone. Sound familiar? That was Gerald Ford. The founding fathers understood that only by making government the servant, not the master, only by positing sovereignty in the people and not the state can we hope to protect freedom. That's Ronald Reagan. In the United States, it is the people who are sovereign. The government is theirs to speak their voice and to voice their will. That's Omar Bradley, General Bradley. In no other place, at no other time, has the experiment of government, of the people, by the people, and for the people, been tried on so vast a scale as here in our own country. That's Teddy Roosevelt. The history of government on this earth has been almost entirely rule of force held in the hands of a few. Under our constitution, America committed itself to a place where power is in the hands of the people. That's Calvin Coolidge. G.K. Chesterton visited America at the end of his life, back in the early 1900s, and he said this, America is the only nation in the world that is founded on a creed, and that creed is set forth in the Declaration of Independence, that all people are equal in their claim to justice, and that governments exist to give them, i.e. the people, that justice. Why did I spend so much time on that? Read your Bible in context. If you're going to lead at a time where everybody's following, then you've got to read your Bible in context. Jesus didn't tell you not to judge. He told you how to do it. And that when you do, you better be weary because you're going to be judged in the same way. That's what the Bible says. And when Paul said, obey the government, the governing authorities, what did he then say? the authorities that in God's sovereignty he's placed over you. You are Americans. You are not Romans. You don't live under Nero. 
You live under who? The people. A government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And if anybody tells you different, they're the ones in violation of Scripture. Not you. They're the ones who are taking the Bible out of context. Not you. They're the ones who are defying the government. Not you. Do you get it? If I learned anything, and I think Caleb wants to do Q&A, so I'm going to shut up here. If I learned anything in my college presidency when I, in God's grace, and it really was, if you want to lead, always take over a failure, never take over a success. I'm serious. You know what I'm saying. Some of you do. If you take over a success, there's no place to go but down. There's a reason that that, uh, that metaphor, that analogy of big shoes to fill, there's a reason for that. If you're trying to fill big shoes, you probably won't. So if you want to lead, find a failure. Find something that's ready to go under. Oh, you may lose, you may not succeed in saving it, but I'll tell you this, there's no place to go but up. And I also know this, they don't want you to fail. Your board, your owners, your, your donors, your parishioners, members of your church, whatever the organization is, they don't want you to fail because they know the place is almost bankrupt. So they're going to give you a lot of grace. They're going to let you do things as a leader that they'd never let you do if you inherited a success. Trust me, I know this. If you want to lead, take over a failure. If you want to lead, find a crisis. I don't agree with much of anything Barack Obama ever did. In fact, I sued him twice. <laughs> but his chief of staff, in the first days of his administration, said something brilliant. Rahm Emanuel said this, never let a good crisis go to waste. That's brilliant. You, you people, you live in a time of crisis. This is a crisis. It's a crisis of freedom. It's a crisis of liberty. You're being told that you have to wear a piece of paper over your face to go to Walmart. You're being told that you can't go to church. There's a pastor in Canada right now that's been told that he's fined $23,000 and that his sermons must now include scientific stuff on COVID rather than the refutation of the government policy. They're telling him what he has to say in his sermons. And if you think, well, that's just Canada, it won't happen here, you're crazy. You're crazy. We're one election away. Elect Joy Hoffmeister as your governor and you're going to have it here. I said I could make you mad and go home. <laughs> Michigan had it. They elected somebody like that in Michigan. Gretchen Whitmer is a clone. And this is my home. I know what was going on in Michigan. They shut the place down. We've got a cottage on Lake Ontario in New York, a family camp up there. They shut the place down. I didn't even know if I'd be able to cross the border to get in, to go to the family camp this summer. They shut the place down. It's not that far, folks. We live in a time of crisis. Never let a good 
crisis go to waste. If you want to lead, find a failure, find a crisis, and then be strong and courageous. Be steadfast and immovable. Speak the truth in love, grow up, and act like men. You want to do some Q&A? Sure. I'm so sorry for saying damn Yankee. I really am. <laughs> Forgive me for that. I was quoting him. It's, it's recorded, so it's totally fine. <laughs> what do you want? Here? Uh, okay, so let's do this. Let's, uh, let's take a couple minutes here. Does anyone have any particular questions that you would like to ask Dr. Piper? We're going to give you the floor. No questions, are any questions off the table? No, I, I really, I told Kale Bask if I would do this, and I actually, I love doing q and A. I I really, it's kind of my sweet spot. I enjoy Q&A. So if you want to spend time in questions and answers and q and I love it. So you ask any question. It can be about the book. It can be about anything I just said. It could be about COVID. It could be about, uh, yeah, whatever you, what's ever on your heart. So if you disagree with something I said, if you disagree with my exegesis on Romans 13.1, I'll try to be gracious. Uh, it's not my spiritual gift, but I'll try to be gracious in responding to you. Seriously. No, I, I welcome the questions. This, I, I, I know you all are. Okay, well, I, was gonna say, I know you've got at least one. <laughs>